Well, our passage today is Matthew chapter 20. I encourage you to turn there. We're going to look at verses 25 through 28 today. And if you would, let's all stand in recognition that this is God's holy, inspired word. Matthew 20, 25 through 28. Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your precious and relevant and life-changing word. Lord, we ask that you would indeed change us as we think upon and, and meditate upon your word today. Help us to apply it to our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this, this passage may not seem like a Christmas passage. It comes at the end of Matthew, towards the end anyway, and it probably seems like it should coordinate more with Easter. But what Jesus says here in this passage is really the heart of Christmas. If you would become first, you must become last. If you would become great, you must serve. And as Jesus says in Mark chapter 8, he who would come after me must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And he said this because he was the best example of that paradox. The greatest, most magnificent individual of all time, God the Son, became a servant in becoming the child of Bethlehem. And as verse 28 says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And interestingly, while Jesus told the disciples that they would take up their own crosses, he did not consider them to be servants. Why do you think that is? In fact, in John chapter 15 in the upper room, Jesus told the disciples, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. And I want you to... to keep that term friends in your mind because we're going to see it again later. So throughout this conversation with the disciples in the upper room, Jesus emphasized that he had chosen them, that he had shared with them what he was planning, and that he would be the one to provide them with the strength to follow him. And in fact, he would send a helper for that very purpose, and that would be the Holy Spirit. Now, why did Jesus not treat the disciples as servants? The answer to that question reveals that there's more to what I called a paradox earlier. You see, his service didn't end at the cross. It continued on after the cross. Even after he ascended to the right hand of the Father, Jesus still intercedes on the behalf of his people. The Holy Spirit fills you, he fills me, and so we can actually take up our crosses. We can act as his ambassadors. In fact, I want to suggest something that may be truly counterintuitive for you this morning, and that is you can only serve Christ if he first serves you. And what's in counterintuitive about that is that we think 
about the Christian walk only as us serving God. Perhaps you were even thinking of the verse where Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me. Well, we are indeed to obey God's commands. And part of obedience is recognizing that he is our king. But can we possibly obey God without his help and without his strength? Can we endure the suffering of our own cross without him helping us to endure persecution and undergo trials? Can we possibly become the kind of person that will give up everything from the world, will give up influence or popularity, and instead spend our lives preferring others before ourselves and serving other people unless Christ lives in us, enables us, ultimately serves us every day, every night of our lives. We can't. There's never a day that Christ is not serving us to enable us to serve him. And he calls us to a radical life, doesn't he? He says, whoever would be great must be a servant. Whoever would be first must be a slave. That's a lifestyle that sacrifices everything for the sake of others. And that's hard. And in fact, it's impossible. And that's why Jesus once said, with men, it's impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. It's impossible to carry your own cross. It is impossible to become everyone's servant at the cost of giving up your own desires unless God serves you. And so Matthew 20.28 is what makes Christianity possible. And here's why I've made such a big deal about this on the day before Christmas. If Christ were only a great teacher calling for sacrificial obedience, that wouldn't be anything new. He would simply be teaching another philosophy and moral improvement program. If Christmas only meant that a man appeared on the scene in history to call people to follow him, that would not be good news because we don't need another religious leader saying, follow me. We don't need another self-proclaimed prophet. We don't need psychological self-help theories. What we need is the desire and the strength to serve others in the face of suffering and persecution. What we need is salvation from sin and death and hell and forgiveness for our sins and redemption from guilt and the wrath of God. We need someone who can give us new life with the power to die for one another in the service of love. And I think we also need to understand something else important, and that is God does not need our service. Nor is he glorified by people who think they are helping him out. Quite the contrary. The irony is that God is glorified by serving us. And that probably sounds odd, but, but think about it this way. Every time the scriptures command you to do something, the command comes with the offer to enable you to do what is commanded. But only if you will depend upon God. Only if you will realize that you need him. So built into the command is the ability to obey, but remember that God often asks the impossible. He loves to make the impossible possible. And when he does, he is glorified. 
So you truly obey and Jesus and show that you love him when you allow the Holy Spirit to come alongside of you to carry your burdens, to fill you with power. When you become a Christian, a disciple of Jesus, you do not become his helper. He becomes your helper. In fact, that's the name, helper, paraclete, given to the Holy Spirit. You don't become his servant. You become his friend. And he becomes your servant. And that's why becoming a Christian is so incredibly humbling. It's why Christmas is humbling. We admit that we need help. We turn to Christ and we say, I can't be or do what I know I'm supposed to be and do. I'm desperate. I need something way beyond what is inside of me or any other person. I have nothing to offer and trade or purchase. I trust you to serve me. That's humbling in so many ways because that's not the way we think. We are Americans, after all. We help ourselves, right? And yes, as I said earlier, we are to submit to God's authority. We are to acknowledge his right to tell us to do whatever he pleases. Paul even uses the analogy of a bond slave. Maybe you were thinking that earlier as you're trying to reconcile all these ideas. He uses the idea of a bond slave, and you know that that's one who willingly commits himself, devotes for life himself to his master. But again, we are not God's slaves in the sense that he needs our help and that his work in the world is sustained by or dependent upon whether or not we perform that service. Likewise, God is not our servant in the sense that we command him to provide us what we need. God serves us in that he uses all of his divine resources in the furtherance of his perfect will and plan to help us, to strengthen us, to guide us, to support us, to provide what we need. And you want to know a sad truth? Like I suggested, most people don't like that message of Christmas. Nobody really wants to have to depend upon someone else. We'll take the cute baby in the manger, and even the powerful reigning God who is king over the universe, as long as we can keep them in existence, we'll set the nativity scene up on our windowsill, right? We'll say, yes, God's omnipotent. He's sovereign over all things. We want God to do his part. We'll do our part. But the incarnation was necessary because we can't please God in our own efforts. Look again at our passage today, specifically that last half of verse 28. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So in order to serve us, Christ first had to ransom us. And as I said at the beginning, he was born to die. The Son of God was not caught up unexpectedly in a plot that resulted in his death. But Hebrews 2 puts it plainly, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And then look at verses 18 and 19 that are right before our passage today in Matthew 20. Jesus and the disciples are on the road going up to Jerusalem. There's fear in the air because everyone suspects something bad is going to happen. 
All the hints have been there. Jesus has been preparing them for that. And he says here, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. So he's knowingly walking to his death. But that's why verse 28 explains that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. He chose to suffer. He chose to die on our behalf, participating intentionally in his own execution. And why is that death called a ransom? It's because in the Greek, that word means a payment to release someone from bondage or incarceration or enslavement. Who was in bondage? We were. Bondage to what? To sin and death. And what was the payment to release us from that bondage? Jesus' death on the cross. So he paid what we could not pay so that we could go free. Do you think of yourselves as sinners? Don't even use God's standards in answering that question. Just use your own. How many times have you been disappointed with your words and your actions? Maybe this morning. This week, certainly. This month, if you fall short of of your own standards, how much have you fallen short of God's perfect righteousness? The Bible says that our condition of sin will bring judgment and wrath upon us after we die if we do not find a rescue, a ransom through Jesus Christ. For the wage of sin is what? Death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the good news. But without the cross and then without the resurrection, all of our sins from the past would still be with us, wrapping us up in those horrible chains, that enslavement, that bondage of unrighteousness. And if Christ did not serve us through the cross and then rise from the dead, we would remain dead, condemned, separated from God for eternity. And how pitiable it would have been to miss the opportunity to, in this life to live it up to the fullest. But as I said earlier, people don't like that message. They don't like the thought that we have to have God rescue us by dying for us. Paul in his letter to the Romans said that this message is an embarrassment to the world. People like to hear about raising children. They want to hear about investing their money wisely. They don't want to hear about their need for a Savior. The Romans of Paul's time, they prided themselves on their power, just like Americans do today. They had military might that could conquer the other nations. They had a tremendous program of building roads, some of the greatest lawmakers in history, the ability to write great literature, to create breathtaking art to these people. This message of sin in the midst of their success, or at least perceived self-success, it was silly. And then one who has to continue to serve them. But it's not foolish to those of us who have been released from bondage. To us who look back at the way we were. To realize what has been done. The fundamental foundational change of heart, of mind. 
comes with God's ransoming power through Jesus Christ on the cross. And in that same book of Romans, chapter 1, Paul says that this good news of the free gift of eternal life, that is the gospel of God that was promised beforehand in his holy prophets and the holy scriptures. The, the holy scriptures is Paul's term for the Old Testament. So as soon as the fall of man, of Adam and Eve occurred, God had that gospel ready. And he made it clear that the scriptures bore witness to him and that he was the son of man referred to in Daniel 7, the suffering servant referred to in Isaiah 53, the seed of the woman promised in Genesis 3 and more. And as C.S. Lewis has observed, the pages of the Old Testament rustle with hope. Over and over we hear the promise, a Savior is coming. He'll be an Israelite. He'll be from the tribe of Judah. He'll be one of David's descendants. He will be born in Bethlehem. He will live in Nazareth. He will spend time in Egypt. He will suffer. He will be betrayed. He will die on a tree. He will bear the sins of his people. He will be forsaken. He will rise again. And each one of those events and a hundred more are all written about in the Old Testament. You see, you can take Muhammad out of Islam and the message of Islam remains. You can take Buddha out of Buddhism and his message retains its integrity, but remove Jesus Christ from the gospel and you destroy it. That's because Jesus is the gospel. Christianity was never meant to be this intolerable religion of rules and ritual. Christianity is a person who came to earth to do for man and woman what they could not do for themselves. So the gospel is the good news that he promised from the very earliest stages of human history. And the essence of the gospel is Jesus Christ in a relationship with you, enabling you, serving you, helping you as a friend. His friend. And so a question is, are you of the many mentioned in Matthew 20? Were you ransomed when Christ died? Or are you still under the guilt and power of sin? Listen to John 15, 13. Greater love has no other than this, no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. So Jesus told the disciples that he would lay down his life for his friends. And then you see this next part. You are my friends if you do what I command you. And you may think, okay, we did all this work only to get to this part and you're telling us that we have to obey and serve God to be his friend. But I want you to understand something here. Doing what Jesus commands is not how you become Jesus' friend. It is the way you act when you are his friend. So applying what we've been talking about today, God serves you by saving you, by ransoming you. Then he continues to serve you, enabling you to obey him. And your obedience is the evidence that he is serving you and that you are his friend. That you are part of the many who have been ransomed. Jesus' ransoming you is what frees you and empowers you to be his friend and do what he commands. But if you truly are his friend, you can evaluate that reality by asking if you are obeying the Lord. 
If you're looking to his word to discover what it says, if you're seeking after the kingdom's growth in this world, if you're sharing the good news of the gospel, serving others and not just living day to day for yourself. Jesus did not come in search of servants or slaves. He came to gather those whom he would make his friends and representatives. And for these he laid down his life, for these he gave his life as a ransom, for these he intercedes daily, imparting his strength and his sufficiency. These are the many of Matthew 20, verse 28, and these are the many whom he then sends out as his friends into the world to expand his kingdom. And that is the wonderful news of Christmas. That in the gospel, God offers mankind a richer joy than anything else this world offers. We, God's creation, blinded by sin, unable to create God's mighty work because we suppressed its glory and our unrighteousness, would have just continued on, but to the praise of God's infinite grace, He not only communicated with us in a way that we would directly understand through Jesus Christ, but he died for us while we were yet sinners, and he restored hearing to the deaf and sight to the blind. And now we have the privilege of not only understanding the song, seeing the big picture, so to speak, but to share that with others. It's one of Christmas carols go, and as Tiffany was playing, how great our joy. So that's what you're called to do. You're called to take up your cross. You're called to serve others because you are a friend of Jesus Christ. And you may not be surprised to hear me say this, but just as Christ's greatest service to us was to ransom us from sin and strengthen us to follow him so your greatest service to others is to tell them of their sin and to tell them how the gospel deals with that and then to strengthen them through your edification and encouragement isn't that what Jesus does for us and of course you know eloquent words will not change people and logical arguments won't change people Nor will your lack of eloquence or incomplete statements cause people to reject Christ. The power of God for salvation is not in your words. It is in the gospel. Because remember how we started this morning. Ultimate salvation is about Christ serving us by first ransoming us from the power of sin. So the people that you're talking to have to be one of those that are the many. You may tell people you believe in God. You may talk about events at church or your commitment to your spouse. You may even talk about biblical principles. But your words will not affect others. You must proclaim the gospel. Education doesn't change people. It just makes them more intelligent in their sin. Bettering social conditions doesn't change people either. Doing something to help meet their material needs is good, but it doesn't change the heart. The only thing that changes the heart of a man or woman is the Holy Spirit through the gospel. And the people of these communities around us need to hear the words of life. 
that the Son of Man came to give his life for a ransom, as a ransom for many, and that that ransom price was his life. Why would he do that? We've already seen that with God there's no hunger that needs to be filled. There's no need for servants. His plan will unfailingly come to pass. His purpose will be realized. And yet God who needs nothing created us in order that he might love us and perfect us. He created the universe already for seeing the cloud of flies around the cross. His back pressed against the rough wood, the nails driven through his wrists and his ankles, the torture of slowly suffocating to death. As again, C.S. Lewis says, God is the host who deliberately created his own parasites. He created us knowing that he would exploit and take advantage of him. Perhaps then we can understand why in Philippians 2, verse 9 through 11, we read that therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So why did God do all of that? Because he desired to ransom and redeem a people that would be his bride for eternity. We are those who have come before us. We, I should say, and those who have come before us and those who will be after us, all who put their faith in Jesus Christ are the bride that Jesus purchased We are in an eternity of people who will praise the Lamb. And so Christmas is about humility, and it is about love. In that same Philippians passage, Paul challenges the church to have the same attitude that was in Christ Jesus. It's the same attitude that Jesus expressed in the challenge that he gave to them in the upper room according to Matthew 20. And these are the things that I encourage you to talk about in your families as you celebrate Jesus' birth tomorrow. Don't keep Jesus at a distance. Don't have the nativity scene in the window and in the real focus of the day or the presence under the tree that are yet to be opened. Don't let familiar carols tonight and images of Christmas cause you to easily walk past those major scenes without realizing what the incarnation was really for. Jesus came to ransom you from sin, to serve you, to make you his friend, and he now calls you to do the same. And so parents, talk to your children about sin. God's answer to it. The necessity, even after we have been justified by God's grace, for the Holy Spirit to walk beside us every day, working us to will and to do his good pleasure. Share how the incarnation in Christmas is about the sovereign God of the universe who serves his people. So what are we seeing in our families? Are we seeing a husband and a wife that serve one another? Are we seeing siblings that serve one another and prefer one another before themselves? Or are we seeing the exact counter gospel in our homes, in our relationships, and in our workplaces?
This is a real challenge to us today. And I pray that what we see in this year to come is a family of God's people who truly excel in serving one another. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for your perfect word and for all that you've done for us. Thank you, Lord, that you served us first by coming into this world. While we were ignorant of our own disaster awaiting us, while we were self-sufficient in our pride and our own inflated ideas of what we were capable of. And then, Lord, you continue to serve us even after you died and rose again. You serve us by interceding for us. You serve us by working in us to will and to do your good pleasure. You serve us every day of our lives, enabling us to do the impossible that you command us to do because that ultimately brings you glory. And so, Lord God, I thank you for calling us your friends. The fact that you did not come to call servants, even though we regard ourselves as slaves of the kingdom. Even though you are the king and the master, you did not come to call servants. You came to call friends and co-heirs. And even like a Peter who would say, no, Lord, we want to, do, we want to help you. Let us wash your feet. Help us to remember how you said that unless you wash our feet, unless you serve us, we will not be clean. We will not be able to do the things that you've called us to do. Or may our lives, may our families, may our workplace, our relationships reflect this heart of Christmas. For you call us to have the same attitude that was in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.